Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. We're in Isaiah chapter 17, and we're going to look at the 14 verses of chapter 17. And first, a quick word of background and context. We're going to see a pronouncement against Damascus at the opening of the text, and then the remainder, verses 4 through, is it verse 17? Verse 14 speaks to God's own people. So these opening three verses are a pronouncement against Damascus. Damascus has been an enemy of the people of God ever since the, ever since the reign of Solomon. Uh, we see the origins of the feud in, in 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. God raised up Rezin, son of Eliada, as an enemy against Solomon. Rezin had fled from his master, King Hadadezer of Zobah, and gathered men to himself. He became the leader of a raiding party when David killed the Zoabites. He went to Damascus, lived there, and became king in Damascus. Rezin was Israel's enemy throughout Solomon's reign, adding to the trouble Hadad had caused. He reigned over Aram and loathed Israel. So we've seen Aram mentioned before, and now we see Damascus uh, named here. And the origins are uh, actually attributed in part to uh, David's, own, uh, David's own raiding party. Uh, along the way, this guy named Rezin is sort of dislodged and becomes this, this uh, sort of a dark version that parallels David. He goes from this ro uh, roaming outlaw with some followers to king, only he's king in Damascus. So that's the, that's the backstory all the way back to Solomon. Uh, now they're still enemies. Here's chapter 17 of Isaiah, a pronouncement concerning Damascus. Look, Damascus is no longer a city. It has become a ruined heap. The cities of Aror are abandoned. They will be places for flocks. They will lie down without fear. Now, what's interesting, I don't know, I don't know the cities of Aror that are in this region near Damascus. The only cities of Aror that we know of were in Moab. Uh, so I don't understand verse two completely. The fortress disappears from a frame and a kingdom from Damascus. The remnant of Aram will be like the splendor of the Israelites. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. All right, this is, uh, this is what's coming against Damascus. And it's been a long time coming. Wait patiently on the Lord. Do not take vengeance. All right, you leave that in the hands of God. It is his to repay. This long-standing, uh, this long-standing, um, militant blood-soaked tension uh, against nations like Philistia and Moab and Assyria and Babylon, and now they name Damascus in particular. God's going to handle all of that, but he's going to deal with his own people. Look at how harshly he dealt with Assyria and Babylon and Moab, but look at how he speaks to his own people. On that day, the splendor of Jacob will fade and his healthy body will become emaciated. It will be as if a reaper had gathered standing grain, his arm harvesting the heads of grain, as if one had gleaned heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim. All right, uh, uh, Rephaim. This term, valley of Rephaim, has a very grim name. That means the valley of the departed. Only the gleanings will be left in Israel, as if an olive tree had been beaten, two or three olives at the very top of the tree, four or five on its fruitful branches. This is the declaration of the Lord God of Israel. In our study of the book of Ruth, we saw that Leviticus uh, and num uh, Le the Leviticus and Deuteronomy both give this practice to farmers where you always leave a little bit behind at harvest time. All right, when you're harvesting, like say barley, you leave a little bit behind. Whatever falls out of your bushels along the way, leave that for the resident alien, leave that for the widow, the orphan, 
don't cut the corners of your field, uh, uh, don't harvest the full corners of your field, leave that for the resident alien, the orphan, the widow. And that same imagery is now being employed here to describe what God himself is going to leave behind now as he disciplines his own people. He's referring to Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, uh, now particularly because it's coming from the prophet Isaiah, uh, to, who spoke to the kings of the nation of Judah, to Judah. So he's going to do what he prescribed for farmers. He's going to shake the olive tree, but there's still going to be three or four left up at the top. He's going to glean the harvest, right? But uh, he's going to leave a remnant behind. So this is bad news for Judah, but he's not going to wipe them out. It's far kinder than what he said would happen to Damascus. Verse 7, On that day people will look to their Maker and will turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. They will not look at the altars they made with their hands or the Asherahs and shrines they made with their fingers. On that day their strong cities will be like abandoned woods and mountaintops that were abandoned because of the Israelites. There will be desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation. And you have failed to remember the rock of your strength. Therefore, you will plant beautiful plants and set out cuttings from exotic vines. On the day you plant, you will help them to grow. And in the morning, you will help your seed to sprout. But the harvest will vanish on the day of disease and incurable pain. Ah, the roar of many peoples. They roar like the roaring of the seas the raging of the nations. They rage like the rumble of rushing water. The nations rage like the rumble of a huge torrent. He rebukes them and they flee far away, driven before the wind like chaff on the hills and like tumbleweeds before a gale. In the evening, sudden terror. Before morning, it is gone. This is the fate of those who plunder us and the lot of those who ravage us. So in verses 7 through 11, there's this call to remember the forgotten God, to do away with the worship of Asherah, right, in the shrine that you made with your fingers. On that day, the people will look to their maker, and here in the CSB, the word maker is capitalized. It's a proper noun referring to God. He's the maker. They're going to return to the one who made them forget the stuff that they made, they're going to turn to their maker. Do you see the, the brilliant device in verses 7 and 8? That they are, they, are, they are turning away from the things that they made and they're looking to their own maker. They're coming back home again. Who needs to do that right now? Have you looked at your, have you looked at your books lately and things look really prosperous? And you're like, hey man, I'm doing this thing pretty well. All right, you need to return to your maker, the one who, who causes prosperity and failure. Right, according to his sovereignty. Don't fall for the same trap as ancient Israel and Judah. Don't deviate from your true faith in God and forget who he is and start worshiping things that you make. Instead, return to your maker. It's because bad news is coming on uh, on on Judah because of their in verse 9 because their strong cities will be like abandoned woods and mountaintops that, uh, that were abandoned because of the Israelites there will be desolation and when you worship the things that you've made you become your own God you and I are really lousy gods rather let's turn to the one true God verse 10 is is such a heartfelt plea it could be it could easily just translate directly to the New Testament for you have forgotten the God of your salvation. The God of your salvation, this is a title that David gave God. We saw this in Psalm 51. 
right? This, this is a, uh, to, to remind us that God is the God of our salvation. He's the one who saves us. He's been referred to as the God of armies, particularly insofar as it pertains to the surrounding nations of, of Judah who are enemies of God. But to, when speaking to God's own people, he's the God of our salvation. To those who are against God, he's the God of armies. To us, he's the God of our salvation. This is, uh, this is also brought back in the very final verse, which I'll get to in just, just a second. All right, you've forgotten the God of your salvation. You have failed to remember the rock of your strength. This also echoes in the New Testament. In fact, the very last book of the whole Bible, this letter to the church at Ephesus to see the height from which they've fallen and repent and do the things they did at first to return to God because they'd forgotten him. They had gotten distracted by other things. Who am I preaching to right now? You've been faithful to God for many, many years, and then you just kind of deviated. It may not even be that you ran away from God in big, flagrant sins. Um, Rio Garvin, what's up, Rio? I love you, buddy. Uh, you know, pointed out to me, he's like, Jesse, you tend to use these examples of like really particularly egregious sins, like adultery and outright business fraud. But like, what about everyday sins too? It's possible that you could have run away from God and not even realized it that you just the vaguely slowly you just you just began to drift from him and it's it may have even looked from the outside like you were still doing well spiritually but and it may not even be that you ran away from god and straight into the arms of just pagan idol worship it could have been that you ran from the arms of god into something that's merely good it's not god it's just like him a little bit that's so easy to do especially if there's like a virtuous product from these other pursuits. All right, for example, uh, they, there's a nickname for seminary. It's called cemetery. Because uh, sometimes aspiring pastors or even current pastors can go to seminary and they can just really devote themselves to the minutia of the Hebrew Greek, all right, of the story of Elijah staring down the prophets of Baal for a long time. That passage, and they were, I had to stay away from that passage. I just got sick of it. And it robbed the passage of all of its majesty for me because I looked at it like a grammar lesson. I saw why they call seminary cemetery because I was, I was, I was like parsing through the, 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 the letters of the original Hebrew and the Biblia Hebraica Studardigensia. And I just, I just, I forgot to zoom out and look at the whole story and how God gave victory to his prophet Elijah over the prophets of Baal. It's a phenomenal, amazing story. It could be that you're forsaking God for something like him, something that looks good. Seems like a righteous thing to do, right? To parse every verb of a Hebrew passage. But like, what if it causes you to fall out of love with the text? That's a bad thing. Don't let, say, feeding the homeless become an idol in your life. How ironic would that be? You did it to honor God. You did it because you love God. You did it to serve God. And now it's actually getting in the way and it's become an idol in your life. And it's become your source of peace and your respite and your satisfaction with yourself. You look at how well you've done. Look at how many homeless people I've fed. I'm doing great. And then meanwhile, this sin has been cropping up all the while. These Israelites, similarly, they had begun to worship things that they had built with their hands. These were overtly pagan practices. They had adopted some of the same practices in the high places in the worship of, uh, was it Eshtoreth? Like they, they, had, they had turned from, yeah, the Asherahs, the Asherah poles. That's a sexual sin, by the way. All right, they, had, they had deviated from God's design and they had allowed sexual sin to creep into their lives. 
and they began to worship things that they made. They had forgotten God. And so this judgment is coming, and it's massive. This judgment from God. He's going to deal with his people. And then what's so cool about the ending of verse 14 is that now Isaiah speaks collectively on behalf of the people. And he uses the third person collective plural pronoun, us. He uses the word us. This reminds me of the vision he had of God in his temple in Isaiah chapter 6. The year that King Uzziah died, he saw God. He said, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He includes his sin among the sins of his people, and he sees himself as a part of a sinful culture. And now in verse 14, in the evening, sudden terror. Before the morning, it is gone. Or this shaking of the olive tree that's only going to leave a remnant behind, it's like before you even know it. This is the fate of those who plunder us and the lot of those who ravage us. Excuse me, let me be clear. This is difficult to interpret sometimes. This, uh, this, is, this is God's rebuke that is coming. That happens to those who plunder God's people, who plunder the nation of Judah, all right, who ravage God's own nation. And, and what I'm struck by in verse 14 is that he uses the word us to include himself among the people of God and to give this reminder that they're suffering a similar fate you know, to Damascus, to Moab, to Assyria, to Babylon. The critical difference is that God would leave a remnant of his own people behind. He would not harvest the whole entire olive tree or all of the grain. Rather, he's leaving behind a remnant in his discipline. This is thematic. Every time God pours out his wrath, there's a merciful deliverance from it. Every time God pours out his discipline, there is a remnant behind. There's always this glimmer of hope at the end, and those are the means by which God brings about redemption, even from the worst of stories.